It's Thursday, March 10th, 2011, and this is Tumblevision 56, episode with uh, Howard Rangel, in which we talked to Kevin about... We talked about online communities, about Howard's new university. And how to create a language learning about this stuff and a culture of learning. So he's teaching people collaboration, craft detection, network awareness, attention and participation. How you make those things happen. And we, we dug into them in the context of what's been going on recently in the Middle East and in Wisconsin. Because we have awesome music. Isn't it great? This is Kevin Gold, your host here with Kevin Marks. Hi there. <laughs> We're at South by Southwest in the Social Media Clubhouse. And this is Tumble Vision, episode 56, with the inimitable and really, like, I don't know, what do you want to call him? Like the James Brown of online community? Like, he's been around a long time. Godfather online community, Howard Rheingold. And uh, Tumble Vision is a weekly salon-style podcast, and we talk about how to connect and create a world that puts people in the center of, of everything, business, tech, and culture. And so we explore different dimensions of tumbling with people who are doing this in this kind of new networked world. And what is tumbling, you're wondering? What kind of weird word is that? Well, it's a Yiddish word, and to tumble literally translates as to make noise. But tumblers were hired to entertain at weddings, and not just to be entertained entertainers that you'd watch or passively listen to, but to get everyone dancing, get everyone involved. If you've seen Dirty Dancing, you've seen Tumblers. Mel Brooks was a Tumbler in the Catskills. Look it up. So it's a good word to describe somebody who's, it's not the same thing as, uh, as leading in a top-down hierarchical world. How do you deal in a network age and collaborate when life isn't command and control? You tumble. And so... Uh, Deb Schultz is uh, is this week in transit, but she joins us, I know, spiritually. And uh, here at the top of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about some current uh, things that have been going on in the world as they relate. And hopefully Howard will join us with some quick thoughts. And then we'll dive deeper into Howard's work and maybe talk a little bit about some of what he's done. Because we know, but everyone isn't familiar with, you know, his really pioneering work in, in how to connect and how to make... Um, make a many-to-many world really function. So this week, the top stories or the top things that have happened to me that seem relevant, we still have revolution happening in lots of the world, uh, Kevin and Howard. We still have, mm-hmm. not only that, America seems to be getting in on the action in its own way with this lockout in, um, in Madison, Wisconsin, and massive, massive numbers of people showing up and camping out at the... At the uh, legislature and to get those people there they're there we haven't had a chance to find them yet but there are going to be tumblers people who are getting their friends to come and, and making those kinds of connections and in in both cases these massive demonstrations are people wanting more democratic participation and more openness do you do you think um in the long run howard that that when you are actually advocating or agitating for openness, you are more inherently likely to use openness in your organizing to make that happen? Like, do those things always go together? Are they effective? Well, I started out by being 
uh, very open online when I first got online. And, of course, that was a, a different world uh, in, the, in the 1980s. It seemed a little bit safer in some places, but I would remind you that Usenet had its bad neighborhoods back, back then as well. But it just paid off for me from the beginning, having been a, a, a struggling writer, as I still am, in my room alone with my words, you know, suddenly being able to share not only the finished product, but kind of the process brought me so much more than, than it cost me. And that's been true in the 25 years since then. Did, were you ever a, a political, involved in political organizing? No. That's not your thing? No. Of is, course, is, I wrote about it 10 years ago in Smart Mobs. Right. And is so, what you see happening in, um, in Egypt, in Bahrain, in Madison, do you see similarities to what you were studying in Smart Mobs or differences? In- well, you know, I think the question, why did it start happening enough for me to write a book about it, in 2001 that's a good question yet yet it's it's the, the middle east has has exploded this many years later and i think first of all all of these discussions of is it social media or not are are so one dimensional uh, events are always multidimensional a lot of things happened but i think in regard to the the use of social media to coordinate collective action, that there's a, a literacy issue, that there's a, a point at which a, a critical mass, an, a, a percentage of the population knows that they can go to Facebook or, or Twitter or they can, they can use crisis mapping or any of the tools that are available now in their political activism, and things change when that happens. And I think one of the things that, that happened was it was easy to get a critical mass of participation in places where it was not easy for a long time because of YouTube and and the internet being a a channel in which it's very difficult to to keep a lid on on news like the young man who who burned himself in Tunisia that really set this off so i think that what people know about how to use everything from their 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 smartphone to the the web is the the critical uncertainty in in the larger sense in the longer sense and that's why I'm concentrating on trying to get some good information out there for people to learn how to use social media not not just to organize collective action of course to to gain knowledge and to create knowledge and to find relationships and to facilitate communities all of the things that you talk about yeah, no, I mean, I'm looking forward to getting more into that. Just first, Kevin, what else have you seen this week? Obviously, we're at South by Southwest, which is kind of the uber geek, sort well, of uber geek. I mean, a lot of the uber geeks aren't here anymore, but there's still... There's still some of us, but... but Speaking of literacy, there are fifteen to 20,000 people here because these skills and the need to use these tools have expanded, and so massive numbers of people now want to come together to right. share... But, it, but, it, but you run into the challenge that one, one of the challenges we talk about with Tumling is that um, to begin with, you, you need more people to have the conversation with. Um, and then you need fewer people talking at once so that you can, the conversation can continue. And that's the, the, there's this sort of double-edged tension. Right. Um, and without Tumling, you know, you can get your, you can encourage, you can build a feedback mechanism so stuff will grow exponentially. 
But unless you plan the tumbling stuff into it, it will then um, overshoot and people will leave it because it's no longer useful. Um, and the, the, the challenge that the South by is in at the moment is that it, it has grown to that to such a scale that many people are turned off by it because you literally can't put all those people in one room or even in you know ten rooms um, and still have a conversation. And so people are, are trying to sort of segment bits off and, and construct that. And um, you know, the nice thing about Austin is that it has lots of small spaces that you can do bits of that in as well. Um, so you can you know sit down in corridors or sit down in bars at two in the morning and have conversations. That, that you might not be, um, be so easy to have, even if all of you are actually from San Francisco or New York. But, I mean, have you seen, you've been around so long, Howard, have you seen an event or an occasion scale in real, like in real life that has been able to keep a sense of connection and, and intimacy in it? Well, you know, the connection is always there. It's just that, that as the, the larger events scale, it, it breaks down into breakout groups and smaller groups. So I'm sure there are many people who would say that 50,000 people at Burning Man is not the, the community they remembered when it was a few hundred. Nevertheless, there are all sorts of communities there that, that find their, their way. And I think you, you've certainly seen that happen with the, with the net. The, of course, the... The subgroups that would be particularly useful and and welcoming to you and and to which you could add those don't necessarily make themselves easily evident. So I I, I call this skill infotension, being able to find not not just the information, but the groups of people, the networks, the the communities that that are a match for you. That's 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 a skill. These days, it doesn't present itself to you. It's, it's we, we all use Twitter, and I think we've all dealt with the the people who don't understand Twitter, who just look at the raw feed and and say this is a mess. Well, of course, you got to got to figure out who you're going to pay attention to and and why you're paying attention to them, and you have to engage the people who are paying attention to you in order in order for you to use it in a a, a fruitful manner. I think. I mean, you know, there, people use it for all kinds of things. But to me, it's, it's a, a part of everything that I do. Drawing the line between the, the fun part and the professional part has not made a lot of sense for me for a long time. Can you say more about that? Well, so I was a writer and uh, I had a typewriter and a, a telephone and a library card. And I was alone in a room for a good 10 years and got into this personal computer stuff in the early 1980s because I heard you could you could re, revise a page without having to retype the whole thing. So <laughs> I was just looking for something better than a typewriter, and of course, you know, followed the story, and that led to Xerox Park and Doug Engelbart, and I understood that these these toys of the early 1980s were going to become much more powerful, and that they were not just writing tools; they were thinking tools and communicating tools and I plugged my my modem in and suddenly I was able to participate in discussions with all kinds of people all day long and still get my my writing done where where is the participant in all kinds of discussions leave off and the the person who's trying to make sense of it and communicate about it um, start I started writing about it because 
you write what you know. Also, my wife was concerned that I was having too much fun online. I had <laughs> I said, well, okay, I can write about it. <laughs> really, well, literally, a- why I started. But there was a there was a big row today or yesterday um, between um, the editor of the New York Times um, and the Huffington Post about who's plagiarizing whom and who's adding value to the conversation. And I thought the the thing, thing that struck me about that was how odd it was that um, Keller from the New York Times assumed that this, when he was telling other people's stories, they belonged to him, and anybody else was then precluded from telling them again. Um, because that that doesn't fit the, the the online community sensibility that you've talked about, where people will tell the stories and retell the stories and pass them back and forth. Um, and, but, it, but it is very much this old line media narrative of um, once the story's in the paper, that is the truth, and whatever the sources say about it doesn't matter anymore. Well, now we're getting into the, the whole vast area of what's what's happening to, to journalism. You know, I, I like that 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 Keller and and others at places like the Washington Post and the, and the New York Times feel kind of snotty about their brand. I, you know, I, I want some people to really be to concentrate on that. And of course, we know that we can't we can't trust them completely. Uh, they, they got weapons of mass destruction wrong. So what else did they get wrong? On the other hand, we're 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 in a world that's far ahead of the the old pros in terms of speed, but we're all on our own in terms of making sense of it. And we need a networked world to make sense of it. I think you may have been online when the uh, Egypt has cut off its internet rumor started, and I I mm. immediately communicated with Dan Gilmore about that, who's, who said that comes under the category of interesting if true. So you know what? There was nothing, When I first saw that on Twitter, there was nothing on Al Jazeera, nothing on CNN, there was nothing on the New York Times. I was suspicious that it wasn't on Al Jazeera. So I needed to get three sources, um, and, and two of them were, were independent sources. There was Ed Bice, who was talking to someone in Egypt, and I know him to be a real person who really does talk to people in Egypt. There, there was uh, Trace Root. Um, Something seemed to be happening in Egypt with the Internet. And then, then finally AP picked it up. That was 45 minutes between the rumor and AP picking it up. I think without the network, I wouldn't have been able to, to verify it for myself before then. But that puts a real strain on, on traditional journalists who are trying to verify the story before they, they can publish it. So that's the editor, like Bill Keller, who's, who thinks he's the last word, that's sort of that's that's sort of one way to do that kind of verification. You don't don't publish it until we're sure, but it's not the only thing happening out there in newsland anymore, is it? Well, that's the tension with the the sort of the blog mode, which is publish it with the disclaimer that you're not sure what this is, and then iterate on it over time. Um, the the thing that the one that sticks in the mind for me was the the London bombings um, in um, two thousand and seven. Um, where these trains were bombed in London um, and it was very clear that something was going on but there was nothing useful on the BBC. Um, This was the middle of the night in California. I was awake online um, and picking up bits and pieces from people in IRC chat, um, seeing photos be uploaded to Flickr, um, seeing stuff being put together on um, Wiki News, seeing all these stories coming in from the field at the main at the same time, hitting refresh on the BBC News site, 
and they were still saying there was an electrical outage on the tube, which was the code phrase that the um, organization used when there was when there was a bomb. Um, and it was watching that truth emerge and watching these these photographs appear and the story being constructed in parallel. Um, with little bits of information for people who were there and lots of people sitting there watching it, like as you were saying, being being trying to retell their story in real time that, that really sort of struck me and moved me at the time. Well, there there's the literacy for you. That's um, crap detection. We all... Mm. We, we really can't count on any one institution like the, the New York Times or we can't really count on someone you've never heard before on... On Twitter, we we requires a, a network of sources and uh, a skill that's I, I call it a literacy because it's it's both a, a skill and there's a social element to it. You need to know how to find out who knows whether this is true, whether or not it's in your your network of of, of sources. And I don't see how traditional institutions are going to keep up with the the pace of change with the with the pace of the the news cycle entirely, and I don't see how we're going to get fully automated means of determining what which are the accurate what, what's the accurate information out of this flood of information. What was it? Something like two hundred fifty thousand tweets an hour in June of two thousand and nine from Iran. How many of those were good information? How many of them were misinformation passed along? How many of them were disinformation that was put out by the the, the powers that be, people, populations need to learn how to do that. I don't think that we can regulate it going in. The, the regulation of quality of input on the Internet it is a bad idea even if it could be done. We wouldn't have the web if we could have regulated what, what people put online. It has to be in people's heads now, just as uh, when the printing press made millions of books possible when thousands of books had been possible people needed to learn how to read well i think they need to learn how to do crap detection among other things now right but but for me for me this is um the you know the douglas adams thing that i always get back to with this which is that um this is a wonderful thing he wrote in 99 where he said um what should concern us is not that we can't take what we read on the internet on trust of course you can't it's just people talking but we ever got in the dangerous habit of believing what we read in the newspapers or saw on the TV, a mistake that no one who has met an actual journalist would ever make. One of the most important things you learn from the Internet is there's no them out there, it's just an awful lot of us. And I think that's, that's, that was, I think that's exactly what you were saying, and that the point is that this media literacy um, becomes, is brought into sharp relief when you're talking about editing Wikipedia or the net, but actually it's true of, of every source you read. Well, um, and, you know, the, the New York Times can be as... as of, as, as full of bullshit um, as a random, um, a random blog on the internet, um, in, in many cases where they're talking about something where they have a blind spot. It's always been true, but it, it seems newer to a lot of people, I guess, that all of a sudden you can have the temerity to suggest such a thing and be taken at all seriously by someone. Mm. Well, there's a, a really uh, interesting uh, a novel um, by Barbara Kingsolver out called The Lacunae, in, in, in which part... Uh, part of which she talks about the Bonus Army march in the USA. I didn't really know about the Bonus Army. Turns out that the combat veterans of World War I were upset uh, when uh, the President of the United States said that the, the $500 that they were expecting, they were going to be paid over 10 years. So they all went to, of course, this is the Depression. Everybody was starving. Mm -hmm. They all went and camped out in Washington, D.C., 
and the uh, the president ordered the army to two officers by the name of Patton and McCarthy did uh, uh, cavalry charges and cut those people down in the streets, uh, you know, just uh, Libyan style, and uh, and burned their encampment. And she had the headlines from the New York Times at the time that that claimed that. Uh, communists had uh, camped out in Washington D.C. and had burned their own camp down. So it's not a, it's not a new story. Yeah, and, and of course uh, Judith Miller and the weapons of mass destruction was a a recent story. And- so you you can't totally trust the New York Times, but you know what they they've got somebody um, in every, every edition every day who makes corrections, and I, I and I think that mm. that's one of the things that I look for. I look for media that make corrections. It's you know, yes. why why Wikipedia is uh, the future rather than Britannica. Right. And do you, do you think that um, the crap detection illiteracy is new or was it always kind of there? We've got someone here, Ian, saying he's concerned, oh, Tea Party people, for example, aren't illiterate. I mean, I don't know. I would think some of what's driving people who want to be involved in the Tea Party is that they don't trust – What's generally being handed to them, although you might argue that they're buying new crap instead of the old crap. <laughs> I mean, how do you know that something? Is- you know, a, a hundred years ago, approximately, a young journalist by the name of Walter Lippmann wrote a book called *Public Opinion*, yeah, in which yeah. in which he said, uh, "Don't tell me that the American people can govern themselves. They're they're uh, they're ignorant and they're easily misled." And John Dewey responded by saying, well, then we need better journalism and we need better education. So here we are 100 years later and we've presumably have better journalism and presumably have better education. Uh, I asked my students, who would you bet on today, Lippmann or Dewey? Are the American people uh, capable of making uh, intelligent decisions or are they ignorant and easily misled? Uh, My my heart wants to go with Dewey, but my head says, how much are you going to bet that Lippmann is, is wrong these days? What is it? Um, I think more than half of the American people do not believe in Darwinian evolution. And something like 20% doubt that the president of the United States was born in the United States. See, I, I now, guess has this always been true? Uh, yes. Probably. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, now we've got millions now they, now they of time get to talk sources. Too. Pardon? Now they get to talk too. I mean, you know, this is yeah. this is the this is the um, um, Nicholas Carr argument of we're losing this this wonderful culture that that, that was was voting this, and actually we're not losing that. It's just that we have another culture that's there in parallel. To. That was always there. That you couldn't hear. You couldn't hear it. But the folk stories, the you know the the, all, the, the, the the nice side of that and the nice side of that coexists. You have the sort of the folk wisdom, the folk stories, the the oral tradition there, and you have the discrimination against the people who are different, the the attack on the witches in the villages, and so on. The thing to me when I hear, I'm seeing like a lot of people in the chat room saying, "Yeah, look, people are not listening to you know the, the Tea Party, or people think it's great to be illiterate." I guess what I often try to read uh, people as is I'm often trying to figure out not what they're literally saying factually. <laughs> I'm trying to understand what they emotionally mean by what they say. Mm-hmm. Because when I, at least I'm tumbling, a lot of what I'm trying to figure out is what do you mean by that? I'm sort of asking myself that question constantly and sometimes everyone else in the room that because I think. 
just because I mean I see this happen with geeks a lot where we'll say and I think this is this is probably the issue a lot of people have with say someone in the in the room chat room say oh people think if you're college educated you're stupid and they want to they want to kind of give a hard time to formally educated people well you can be very formally educated and you know to quote Marion Wright Eidelman you can get all A's and flunk life I mean just because mm-hmm. you focus on uh, what we you know get attached to is facts and say, well, this, the wall isn't red, it's green. Yeah, but if the point is the wall is falling down, who cares if you got the color right? I mean, what is it about? Why are we saying something now, I guess? And I, and I think a lot of stuff that I, I hear for, you know, in the general space is there, there may be more concurrence than we think. Uh, it's just that it's emotional concurrence. It's coming out different. I don't know. That's my... I mean, and the other thing is, you know, there was a treason of the Clarks in the 20th century. We did have... Um, mass intellectual movements that took over government and set up death camps. This was done. Um, mm-hmm. So there is a there is a there is a, a skepticism of these over theoretic models that that have been shown to fall down. Particularly when we've had a sort of the economic presumptions um, of of the of the last sort of forty years. Um, clearly collapsed in front of us in the last few years. You can see why people are suspicious of, of over-reliance on theory too. Right, because how do we get here? So-called smart people with things that were written out and, and you know, people were able to get it out in, in media. I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you think, Howard, about the sort of mistrust of traditionally educated people not necessarily being right, even though then that may be leading someone to say Obama is not, is not born in the U.S.? And is that about someone believing or not believing what is factually incorrect versus someone just saying, I just don't have a lot of faith in how anybody in power got there. Well, um, American democracy is based on mistrust of, of, of government, mistrust of the, the state. Yes. And, and constitutional democracies really emerged from uh, this, this balance between mistrusting the, the, the tyrant and, and mistrusting the mob. So... We're, I think we're always going back and forth about that. It's power and counterpower, and, and, and back to the whole social media in, in, in events from Iran to, to China to the, the Middle East, the, uh, the people who did not have power before do have power now. I, I think I would argue that we are in a, an essentially uh, extremely different situation where every computer, every phone is potentially a printing press or a, a broadcasting station. This is a very, very different situation from not too many years ago when you had to be wealthy or powerful to control the images that would influence people. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. uh, a lot of people, I mean, millions of people, billions of people have that, that, that power now. So we're, we're really in a, 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 a turbulent change, but that doesn't mean that the, the people who have centralized power in places like the U.S. and China and Iran and the Middle East are are are, are outgunned. It means that they've they've discovered that you can do deep packet inspection and go round, round up the people who've been organizing right. online. So it's power and counter power are in an arms race. And in biology, when you have an arms race such as predator and prey, that drives innovation very very much more quickly than it would otherwise. So I expect that we're going to see both social and technological innovation, and we're going to see a lot of turbulence around it as well. That's really interesting insight. Um, can, can you, um, do you... Do you think it's particularly different now than in the past? It's just that we're getting everything faster? 
of course it's different now than in the past. You had, um, uh, what was her name, Bev Harris, the woman who discovered the plans for the Diebold voting machines and put them online, and then the, stand, the uh, Swarthmore students put it on their server, and there was a court case mm. about that. That wouldn't have happened before. Or the, uh, the right-wing bloggers who crowdsourced crap detection about Dan Rather's CBS report about uh, uh, George W. Bush's war record and got, got uh, rather fired. Or remember when Sinclair Broadcasting was going to publish what people on the left felt was a highly partisan uh, documentary and in all their stations right before the, the election about John Kerry. And they crowdsourced finding out who all the Sinclair advertisers were and boycotted them enough to drop their stock by 10% in a couple of days. That was not possible before. It wasn't right. possible for people to, to organize with people they didn't know that quickly right. to that effect before. And so that's new. I, well, and is it just the commu- is it just the net that's increasing the trust in other people that we're meeting that quickly? What is it that's letting us trust people enough to work with them so quickly? Is that just a part of how we've evolved culturally? You know, I think sometimes that mistrust is uh, that, that trust is misplaced, and sometimes it's. Uh, I imagine you you see this in every revolution, and you'll see it in Egypt. The people there agreed on one thing: they wanted to get rid of the guy in charge. Now that they've gotten rid of the guy in charge, they're not going to agree on everything. And so, you know, sometimes a cause comes along. Yeah. Or the, the, the young man in Tunisia, he just ignited people's emotions. And, you know, I, I, I think uh, the Tea Party, I understand the emotions about the Tea Party. I walk my dogs. And the Golden Gate National Recreation Area has decided that they're going to designate places where people have let their dogs walk off leash, and there are only a couple of those. They're going to make those leash areas now. Why does the government have to make these rules? Why do they have to take my freedom to, to, to walk my dogs off the leash away? And are we, is that really a good way to be spending our money right now? Um, it makes me angry. I want, to, you know, I want these people fired. Uh, so isn't that sort of emotionally kind of is the same thing that Tea Party people are saying about about the government in a larger sense. So I I understand that. I think it's it's a good it's a good healthy thing that people in America disagree with their government. <laughs> I, I, I think getting angry about it is uh, not helpful. So so Howard's um, your work is you've written lots and lots of books and you've taught uh, I think UC Berkeley or Stanford. And you're going to be teaching online um, soon. You're going to start Rheingold University and a new book that is not to be, it's not named yet, but hey, collectively, everyone, if you have thoughts, you know, pitch them in. And the new um, book is going to be about about some of the stuff you've been talking about here. The new course is teaching um, social media literacy, crap detection, collaboration, kind of network living, stuff that we talk about under the, the word tumbling. We just started using the word tumbling because we were looking for the name of a person who really actively does this kind of connecting. We didn't we didn't feel like we had a good word for it. And actually, Teresa Nielsen Hayden su- had suggested this one. So, um, so for example, crap detection. Someone here had uh, asked earlier, um, oh, as, as sort of part of that, Frederick, do you want to know 
now that you've you've traveled and you're doing social looking at social media, do you think social media is enabling a wider world outlook for Americans? Um, it, and I, I guess to me that would be connected to crap detection, right? Like, can you tell something's really about other people and connecting to others? Is it really impacting that way, or? Well, you know, I think for um, an, an awful lot of uh, uh, of teenagers, and it used to be teenage boys mostly, but but no longer just teenage boys who are playing World of Warcraft or or any other. A massive uh, multiplayer online game, and part of their crew is in Korea at the moment, and part of their crew is in Brazil at the moment, or uh, people who make anime uh, music videos and and post them on YouTube, and the other other people who who share that uh, that interest are from other parts of the world. And certainly, that is very different from not too many years ago when you just didn't have contact. You didn't do things together with people who were not American. So I think for some people, yeah. Um, I think only uh, something like 30% of Americans have passports. So I think in general, still a little bit sheltered from the world. But certainly anyone who's interested in the the events in the Middle East has been drawn to Al Jazeera because they've had the, the best information out there at that wasn't possible too many years ago. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I don't see how it could have failed to help. Oh, Frederick, he's from Montreal asking these questions. I mean, I don't say it could not become more outward-looking. I'm actually Frederick Canadian and most recently moved to Canada, but I've been in the U.S. My, pretty much my adult life. And um, even in the 20-something years I've been in the U.S., it's, be- I think, become more outward-looking, even if it's only been because, you know, it got bombed on 9-11 and all of a sudden – most of America knew that there was a country called Iraq and it didn't know before or Afghanistan. I mean... Yeah, and there's some crap detection for you. We, we got bombed by a bunch <laughs> by of people from Saudi Arabia and suddenly we became aware of a country named Iraq. Right. Right. It's a media thing. Yeah. So how could... Today, if that happened, post-social media, do you think it would have played out differently? Well, you know, there's this whole... Uh, uh, political theory of the, the public sphere that that says that the way the public sphere is supposed to work is that you, you you've got the, the press and others trying to trying to catch the, the the state cheating and and you've got the ability to form public opinion and influence policymakers but po- people who want policy influenced in a certain way and who have a lot of money to pay for it can now buy public relations. The, you know, one of the things in, um, I'm covering in the book is I, I guess what they are they calling it AstroTurf online. There are a lot of websites online that look mm. like they're really good information about something, and they don't disclose that it's the American chemical industry that's right. that's telling you that. So there is a, a war to influence people's minds, and if you've got money, there are great techniques for doing that very well. Uh, it's easy to mislead people, it's, and it's easy to mis- be misled, and you can buy it by the pound. So, you know, I wouldn't be too sure to, 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 to say that because we have access to all of these sources of information that we're still not being deceived. So, again, I think I, I, I don't believe that the powers that be are in control. 
and I don't believe that they're mm. out of control. I think that we've got um, a, a power and counterpower battle going on, and, and I think that you, you're going to lose if you think that the, the battle is already sewn up by the by the old winners. Do you think there will be a time when it is sewn up? Well, they're working on it. I mean, it didn't. Congress just passed um, a, a resolution that uh, well, I think it was the. The House passed a resolution that still has to go to the Senate that's, that's trying to roll back what the FCC has done with net neutrality. So certainly, the you know, back in the olden days, uh, like the 1980s, there was a, the AT&T was broken up. The Bell system was broken up because it was a, a deemed to be a, a monopoly that was no longer necessary. And isn't well, it amazing? It couldn't possibly become a monopoly that's recognized today unless you're a union, I guess. Well, now we've got... We, my choices for broadband where I live are AT&T and Comcast. Right. Same for me. So we have a, duo, we have a duopoly uh, going on now. And that duopoly would like to not just control the pipes. They'd like to control what, we, what information we put on those pipes. So they would like to privilege their own material and charge people for for. Competing material, that's one way to control it. Extension of copyright laws, the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. A lot has been accomplished in terms of buttoning down what had gotten... But the, there are also like structural assumptions in the, in the way they, they build it in the first place. Um, the chap knocked on my door last week and said, Hi, I'm from, I'm from AT&T. We've run fiber in the neighborhood. We want to connect you up and give you a better internet connection than you're getting from Comcast. And I said, great, is it symmetric? And he said, what? And I said, well... You know, your D- the problem with the DSL is you can only upload a little bit and you can download a lot because they assumed that you're in a broadcast model, um, whereas fiber is actually natively symmetric. And he said, no, you get 1.5 up and you get 15 down. And it's like, well... And he's um, lying. And it's like, well, then you're making it. You're making the new system emulate the old system because that's what you understand and that's what you thought you thought we wanted. And then you penalize if we use it differently. But actually... You know, I have five devices in my house that will organize, record HD video and half of them um, just do it casually because they're telephones. Um, I could saturate the Internet connection that they give me at the moment, um, you know, absolutely continuously by uploading that stuff to to YouTube. Um, But in their their heads, um, I should be doing it the other way around, just downloading stuff instead. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, in Korea and and Sweden, I think you get fiber to the home with... What is it? Hundred gigabyte, thousand gigabyte uh, connections. So, uh, you know, the U.S. is becoming something of a a technological backwater in some ways. And but that's partly because of the legislative structure that has been adopted here, which is, um, as you say, they've said, "Oh, we'll hand out a monopoly here." You know, if if you want to say those are very much state sanctions monopolies. Um, and the other state sanctioned monopolies are, um, are you know, copyright and patents. Those are the ones where the government is explicitly saying, I'm granting you a monopoly on this for a, a term of years. Um, and this, this inherits from the medieval practice of the kings granting their favorites monopolies over certain kinds of trade. And somehow this has been preserved throughout the, um, you know, throughout the system. And there are these people who now expend enormous amounts of effort making sure that the laws uh, are, are held in that way to, to retain that. So, yeah, yeah. Those, 
those are monopolies, Heather. Those are the monopolies we have, but they're not recognized as monopolies. In, yeah, in what I was sphere. saying is I, I don't think that they'd break anything up anymore. I don't think it's it's almost possible because of the kind of legal and financial control um, and who has that and how it's had systemically now. Well, here. there's a there's the, the battle over wireless is not yet completely won. And I think that's why why Google spent a lot of money um, when wireless was was being auctioned because that could be a third and and disruptive uh, alternative to cable and and DSL. And who knows where the technology is going to go? Um, what is that that uh, uh, Eben Moglen is talking about building mesh networks? That yeah, right. Shervin is doing that too. I mean, in the in the wake of what happened in Egypt, Shervin at Shervin is um try to get them voluntarily created so that they can't sh- totally shut the net down in in some of these countries. Hopefully, in any country, we can have some kind of backup ready. So, but at the same time, a- we have a. Sorry. You have to be a, a technology geek and a policy wonk to even understand what this stuff is about that we're talking about. How, how many Americans really know about? But what this? Americans do know is if the internet shut down, they sure know. Right, but that's the that's the that's the challenge, Howard. I mean, wh- what you said was that we have these dueling narratives, and to some extent, we have this dictatorship of the storytellers. If you can tell a good, if you can construct a good narrative about Obama's birth certificate or. The, the 9-11 towers being blown up by the CIA or, you know, whatever these these sort of large public myths are, they, they can be propagated. And that, you know, that works the other way around. You can propagate a large myth that um, AT&T or Comcast are the only way we get to connect to the Internet and aren't they wonderful? Um, and, and part of the challenge is how do you construct the counter myths or counter stories to that? Um, and the point of, of science and scientific inquiry is that it's, it's a method for doing that. It's a method for constructing narratives that you can actually compare with the real world and see if they work. And it, it's obviously not universally applicable, but it's applicable in a lot of places. And that's the, the, the tension we've got is that the distrust of the, um, of the elite then gets stuck onto the distrust of the, the method that helps undermine the elite as well. Yeah, but you know, just, there's two things to me. There's distrust of the elite and there's sort of empowerment. I mean, once you realize the emperor has no clothes, that essentially cooperation is necessary to keep any of these monopolistic structures going. Wait then- a minute. Which, which elite are we mistrusting here? The, uh, the, uh, the pointy-headed professors in, in, in government or the um, inter- interlocking directorates of the boards of corporations. Uh, the, those aren't the same elites. In fact, I think the latter are the ones who, li- who gain from mistrust of the elite. We don't well, really the, know. The distance of anything is that in many ways they are the same. You know, the, the, the revolving door in, in Washington to, to the, the, the directorates, um, to, the, you know, to the regulators, to the companies that lobby the regulators, um, and in, to, to the industries that, that are doing the lobbying. This, this um, you know that that is there and that happens, and so so this sort of dis, you know there is some basis in this um, distrust when um, you know the government economic advisors are recruited primarily from Goldman Sachs. That that is worrying. You know, you know I'll, I'll tell you what the counter narrative is that that I like to use. Okay, Tim Tim Berners Lee did not have to ask anyone to rewire the internet. Yes. He just sent around the World Wide Web protocols and talk people into using it. Exactly. And 
the the Yahoo guys and the and the Google guys, they didn't have to ask permission to start what what ended up being enormous companies and and industries from their dormitory rooms. We would not have that if the the controls that are being put in to the internet are 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 going to be the future of the internet. It's not going to be the past of the internet. We're not going to see that that wide open innovation if it is locked down. If Tim Berners-Lee does have to rewire something or if kids in their dorm rooms have to ask permission to well, I guess sort of, you know, the app store, you got to ask permission to get in Jamie. Apple's app store. You don't have to ask permission to put up a website and and index the web. But one of the things that, that we have lost since, since Tim Berners-Lee invented the web was that at that time, the computers that existed could all act as both servers and as clients um, because they had fixed IP addresses and they could, you could run a server on them. Whereas in the US, you cannot run a server in your house. Um, you have to rent a server in a data center that, that gets an IP address and has a different kind of service. Um, the, the you know in, in in spreading the internet to large numbers of people, a lot of this has been lost, and more so with the, with the you know, the telephony world as well, where you can't even view source on the browser. So one of the threats we have now is that the infrastructure that was there um, that meant you could build on top of this has been undermined partly by these institutional things and partly just by sort of cultural drift, where um, we were running out of IP addresses, so we so we um, stopped worrying about being able to run servers on every device. Um, and assume that you know, IP addresses are magic things that server have, um, and if you want to serve data, that's what you do. Um, and there is this sort of huge pushback against um, running anything from you know from your own house. It, it is a lot of work. Um, well, my my son's been playing Minecraft, and they said you know, they set the server up inside the house. They said, I want my friends to see this. How do I do that? And that's like, okay, I've got to go and sit and poke around in our router for um, two hours and work out how to poke the ports through. Um, whereas when my friends and I were running network games in the in the mid '80s, and we were attached to the internet, anyone could connect to anyone. That, that you know that tension is is still there, and it it is problematic. Without a doubt, you know I'm um, often accused of being an optimist, and I think you can tell that I'm I'm really not. Um, <laughs> but I choose to be hopeful. I think. I know I come from a long line of people who thought there must be some way out of here. Um, and right. and we, we are all descended from ancestors who survived. Uh, and, you know, there's lately there's some DNA evidence that the that uh, Homo sapiens may have been down to two or three thousand people uh, during the Ice Age 60 or 70,000 years ago. The whole species has been at risk several times, and we are the descendants of the people who figured out how to get out of a hopeless situation. So I think that's the mm. difference between optimism and, and, and ho- hopefulness. I mean, if you, if, if you really are not optimistic, then you ought to become a nihilist. And if you're going to become a nihilist, then, you know, really good nihilists shouldn't live that long. So if, if you're going to hang out... If you're going to put children into the next generation, I think that you need to somehow think of contributing to the solution to what looks like a pretty pretty difficult situation. 
I mean, uh, boy, they're they're just about to. U.S. Congress is about to strip the EPA of the 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 power to regulate greenhouse gases because they're they're saying that this is a this climate change stuff is a liberal myth. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is it's sort of about consequences and ramifications, right? I mean, the uh, WMD was a uh, was sort of bought until the reality of it being a myth became clear and to anybody and then in the US and then um, you know they, there's a certain amount of reaction even among people in their own party to say yeah we're not happy about things they said and didn't do because I mean often people don't shift until it's their own lived reality for themselves right not like I'm not going to believe this because you say it I, I need right. to know myself and sometimes that takes oh my god it's 25 degrees warmer <laughs> like oh okay I guess it's here, <laughs> you know. So, so I wanted to quote this 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 thing I, I linked to a little bit earlier was um, some, that Ben Kaznosius shared. He said, "Somebody asked the audience, Ted, what does it feel like to be wrong?'" And the audience answered, "It's bad. It's embarrassing. It's awful." He says, "No, that's a different question. You're asking what does it feel like to realize you're wrong." Being wrong doesn't feel anything. That Actually, I would from say right. I would say that's not even a an act. It's not even a remotely relevant answer because when the question is, "What does it feel like?" Now, what do you think it's about? Not was your idea or notion or mental right. state. An emotional state isn't, um, you know, bad. An emotional state is sad, happy. You know, mm-hmm. so I think it's a different thing emotionally. But that's, about- but, that, but that's the, the, the challenge is to have the emotional empathy with the person you're arguing with. That, that's what bring, brings back to the tumbling. Um to, to be able yeah. to think yourself into their position and say, oh. The, the thing I found, well, I think if you're tumbling, it's very useful. But the thing I found most critical, even if you're not the tumbler in the room, whether it's virtual or real with somebody doing this, um, is, is to stay focused on the question itself. That, to me, is the ground that's easiest to get everybody to. Is not to say, hey, you like this other person or what they said. It's here's the problem. Like, like you still because you you already believe in this problem. So you, it's not if you believe in the problem, I don't need to get you to believe this other person. I need to find out from you what the hell are we going to do. And and then it, at least that's been for me technique wise an easier way to get someone engaged. I don't know, Howard. How how have how's well? It I'd like to loop back to something that Kevin said at the be, the, the beginning uh, of the hour. So students who have the entire internet uh, to compete with with boring teachers are, are uh, they don't really articulate it that way, but they're, they're really tired of this, uh, well, the teacher knows and the teacher's going to transmit this knowledge to us. I think that one of the most important things a teacher can do is to be wrong in public. Oh. And to and accept, then, and to and let then go find out. Up. Okay, if I'm wrong, why am I wrong? What, what's right? That the inquiry is more important than the, the transfer of of information. And they're used to just being expected to know what's on the test and sit there and take their their notes and have the answer when the teacher calls on them. I I think that what we're heading into, what we need to head into, is more of a collaborative inquiry in which the the teacher certainly models the certain certainly knows more about the subject matter but instead of delivering it he facilitates or she facilitates a situation mm-hmm. well it's tumbling uh, in which the students yeah. are motivated to inquire and to learn from each other 
And the thing you do is you hold the space for that. And if anything, you're socially modeling that it is okay to be wrong. It's one of the most powerful things you can do and that people can disagree with you. It's when I'm teaching people and presenting, it's the main thing Mm. exactly that I'm trying to let people do. I mean, when I found out, frankly, being at South by, I mean, I've learned so much here over the years. And I started doing interactive performance here because I realized Somebody in the audience had a funnier punchline than I did. And I thought, well, what, how do I have more of that? Not shut up, everybody. I'm in charge. It was like, what? Well, if my goal is to have a lot of laughs, do I have to write all of them or do I create conditions for them? And, and, uh, you know, Twitter is full of incredibly smart, funny, insightful people. And, uh, it's the chat room here. I mean, people everywhere. I, I couldn't agree with you more hard. So I think to me, it's more about are people comfortable? Uh, being wrong, are there enough people showing them that it's okay, that it's not about rightness and wrongness, but the sort of collective inquiry? And I, I don't know that the democratic structures we've had operate so much that way. I think a lot of people are very caught up with the ego of being right or being right. the one talking. I mean, Ted oh. not is not the least of which a kind yes. of amazing example of that. Well, it's but, very it's scary for a teacher to face a group of people whose parents paid good money and expect them to learn something and to admit that you're you're vulnerable and that you don't know everything and you want to pursue the truth with them. That's a very very scary gap to cross for teachers and and, and I don't blame them for for being afraid of it, but there's nothing you can do because never before have students been able to look it up online and find out whether you, you really know whether you're talking about while you're, you're talking about five seconds. I know there's this great, I, I don't know if I referred to it before in the show, but there's a great piece. I, I hopefully someone will find it quick. Um, Rebecca Solnit has this manversation piece about some guy in Geneva trying to, as, and it's a somewhat gendered thing. I kind of, let me tell you what's wrong with the thing you just said technique of supposedly interacting with others and some guy at a party tries to tell her how wrong she is about something she's saying and starts quoting all these sources at her which turn out to be the book she wrote that the new york times review book reviewed <laughs> but this guy couldn't think that this woman you know that looked a certain way saying in front of him was that till this other source in the room kind of confirms that and that i would imagine with the net has got to be able to happen every five seconds that somebody who knows more than you about that thing who lived it could be yes. next door to you well, it's 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 the um, it's the Annie Hall thing of what happened to have um, him right here, <laughs> right. and you can bring them in, and that is literally what you do with the web. You say, "Well, okay, we were talking about Annie but I happen to have Howard Rheingold right here, and look, here's what he wrote." Right. Um, and <laughs> if you want to argue with him, you know, here's his email address. And that that is the you know. So, so Howard, in, in Rheingold, you or the things you, you you're doing. What do you think is the most effective thing in showing or teaching other people how to be comfortable being publicly wrong? Well, there's, for one thing, I'm I am open and vulnerable, and when I make a mistake, I am open about it. But also, I I try to create the frame by saying, look, I know I know how to do this. And I know that real magic will happen. We are 30 strangers, and we're going to become a learning community. I know this can happen because I have seen it happen, and I have a lot of good ideas about how to facilitate that. But I cannot guarantee that. I couldn't guarantee it in the way that I could guarantee you I would give you 50 facts in a one-hour 
lecture. This is n nothing that, that is wholly dependent on my performance. It's dependent on all of us learning together. And I find, you know, I think it's a lot like why Wikipedia works and open source works. If you make it easy enough for people to cooperate and you make it inexpensive mm -hmm. enough for them I to like cooperate that. and you yeah. encourage them to do it, they immediately find out, oh, I can put in one thing and get out 10 things. But if I, let, if I don't let the other people know what the things I'm interested in are, I'm not going to get those 10 things back from them. I need, to, I need to feed them and I need to let them know something about me before, I can, I can, before they can feed me. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. I've never been disappointed whenever I've done it. It's always it's always worked, and I think the more you do it, that sense of trust and faith is just there from your experience. But if you haven't done it, there's a sort of I can't believe it'll work. I, I know when I've talked to people about couchsurfing who don't know the site or the what it is, which is people sharing around the world. Hi, do you want to stay at my house or I'll stay at yours? And you can travel for free in lots of places. And I remember when you know I did it in Europe and telling someone about it, they couldn't believe you would feel safe, especially as a woman going to some stranger's house, and to, to not book hotels and to just know that when you get to Milan or whatever it is, you'd stay on their couch. Well, I mean, again, it's that sort of like this thing we can't see or like because we're not there yet, we believe something bad will show up. And then you've done it enough times, you realize, you know. Right. It, there, are, there are ways you make it safer, but it's inherently a, a horrible situation. Well, there's you, a, there, there is something of a, a network of trust among the, the, the people who are really committed to that community. And so oh, yeah. if you can connect with people who know who to trust, then you're, you're, you're in business. You know, I, I, this, this is a wild uh, analogy here, but I sometimes paint on spider webs, and it's really hard to get a spider web to hang together. But if you can get paint on about, oh, about 10% or 5% of the web, suddenly it will hold together. And I think if in a network there are two or three people who you have gotten to know well enough to trust, then mm -hmm. trust becomes a little bit transitive. They've, they've got two or three people that, that they know well enough to right. trust. And so I, I think in online communities, if you can get some percentage of the, of the people who only communicate online to actually meet from time to time or once face-to-face, -face, then it's like the spider webs. It's... Um, the, it may only be 5% of the, of the online network have met each other face-to-face -face and have gained some trust, but that 5% can kind of build a fabric that other, other people can build on. Yeah, I mean, I found what we have is, and to me this isn't just about the Internet. Um, I think generationally we have an increasing level of public vulnerability. It's sort of what my work is most focused on, sort of public intimacy and sharing. And uh, I'll be talking about or tumbling a session here on South by... Uh, getting over oversharing it's one of my my panels and um i think that's been happening over time quite a bit i mean i even thinking about cable tv talk shows hearing people talk publicly about things they wouldn't talk about before and i think the more that happens the more likely other people are to do it the standards are what you can talk about shift and i think that inherently increases trust more well i've uh, i've had many experiences Online, in which I, I was forced by circumstances to be extremely vulnerable or extremely uh, open about circumstances in my life. And I've found a, 
I've been astonished by the, the degree to which I can trust strangers, and strangers have been mm. you know, remarkable uh, to me. So, you know, I, I just, um, I've got a daughter. I talk to her very um, sensibly about having good sense about what you put online and how you communicate with with, with people online. I'm not completely naive about it, but I, I find that that being trusting pays off. I'm not going to trust that person in Nigeria who wants me to give them my bank account number, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to trust a, a new cure for cancer that somebody on the Internet tells me. I'm going to go look into it a little bit. But in general, I find that if you put out trust, then trust will, will, will come back to you. I think that's right. I mean, as somebody who certainly got hurt by trusting um, early, but I do a lot of it still. I, I think, um, I think it's uh, as you know, Freena is making a point about trusting yourself. I mean, to me, the critical thing is to be connected to feeling. And like I was trying to say to Umer, I think a lot of our problems we need to not think our way out of, but feel our way out of. And I think really trust is. I know trust is is some, a feeling you have more than an idea. Um, and I don't know, I hopefully we'll become more connected to how we actually feel. I mean, I, I think once you don't know how you feel about something, you try to think your way through it, it becomes more com- like, is this person safe? It can be quite complicated. And- but, but it's also about building a culture where the trust can exist. Um, so that is, you know, building right. a space where you can feel safe to be vulnerable. Right. Which is, Howard, I guess what yeah. you're saying, like by you being doing it, more people are drawn to you and then they'll, they'll just sort of respond in kind. And that has proven to mostly be the case. Again, I, I don't want to be naive and I don't want to uh, advocate that others do it. But in my experience, being, being very open and trusting has worked for me uh, really right. well. But, but, I mean, do, do you, know, you know the, the ultimatum experiment? Um, the, yes. The, uh huh. Yes. So the um, I'll, I'll explain it for the, the listeners. Um, but the ultimate experiment is where you say um, the, the researcher says, "Okay, I have a sum of money here, ten dollars. Um, you get to make an offer. Kevin gets to make an offer to Heather mm-hmm. of how we split the ten dollars, and Heather gets to accept or reject it. If she ex- accepts it, then the split is we paid the money. If she rejects it, neither of us get the money." Um, and the question is, how, how do people split? And the economist's answer is, well, I should offer Heather five cents because that's still better than nothing. Um, whereas the actual practical thing is, if you offer um, much less than, than half, the person will reject it and say, well, that's not fair. I'm not, I'm not going to give you that. And that was the sort of the ultimate experiment result, how people are not like economists think they are. But then they tried it in different cultures. Um, and what they found was that in the... Um, the hunter-gatherer cultures where there is um, very much a sort of dictatorial authority, um, there people would accept these derisory offers because they thought that was all they could get because they were used to, used to sort of making the best of a, of a bad thing. Um, but in the cultures where there was um, a potlash tradition of, of um, gift-giving being how you gain status, um, the person making the offer would offer more than half to the person who had to accept and reject it. Um, and that created this sort of counter pressure on those people who said, now you've created an obligation, I don't want that. And they would reject, you know, if you, you say, okay, I'll give you 90%, and they would reject it because that was creating an obligation to them. So uh, this sort of 
this the original result that was thought to be um, a sort of a cultural truth that you should try and be fair was was found to be culturally determined depending on what your previous experience was. You know, I became very interested in the ultimatum game when I was uh, I was convinced that an interdisciplinary study of cooperation was the most important thing that that we could do right now because after all, um, how humans cooperate and what, what what stops us from cooperating. How important is that? I mean, everything from dealing with climate change to, uh, you know, uh, political hostility has to do with that, that issue. So I did spend some, some years with Institute for the Future trying to, to do that. I just put a, a link uh, in the chat, cooperationcommons.com, where we, we tried to put a lot of information about. So little findings like the ultimatum game, I think, for, they're, they're showing us pieces of a puzzle that has not been put together. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize for Economics last year. She's got part of the puzzle. Uh, but, you know, to, to a large extent, the uh, behavioral economists and the biologists who are studying mutualism and uh, computer scientists who are looking at distributed computation, they're not really getting together. There's, there are no, there's, there's not an institutional gravity to draw them together to uh, over this topic. So I, I think it's one of the unfinished, uh, this is some of the unfinished business of the 21st century. I, I think, you know, there was a time when people didn't know that microorganisms caused disease. They thought it was foreigners or sin or, um, <laughs> or, 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 or magic. It could uh, be something in me that's a problem. It's got to be somebody. I mean, how much, boils, asthma, yeah. how much bile boils down to that? Like almost everything? So, you know, I, I just think that, that maybe we can learn. Maybe there are the equivalent of a microorganism in, in regard to, to cooperation that will teach us something about the conditions under which people are likely to cooperate. I don't think we're ever going to come up with a formula for it. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not a deterministic uh, system. You know, human sociality is a complex, uh, adaptive system. But I think one, mm-hmm. one of the things that Ostrom showed us is that there are design principles that make things work. Yes. Well, we're socially wired to, I mean, we're wired to be social. It's how you develop psychologically. It's how you know you exist. You have somebody raising you in some way to some degree that you imprint with. I mean, you don't even know you're here unless there's a certain amount of mirroring that you get. Hmm. So I, it just seems to me natu- naturally part of what drives us. And it's certainly to me, it's, um, what is shifting in the era we're in is just a, everything is moving in that direction. The fact that business has to focus on communal stuff. I mean, when you first started dealing with this stuff, we, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon, um, Howard. But I'm really interested. Like, did you f- foresee business having to be focused on cooperation and collaboration? You know, if you had if you had shown somebody in in business before that 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 Google was going to to share their AdSense or that. Amazon was going to share its its API for its its um, e-commerce engine, or that IBM would have open sourced so much of its software, they wouldn't have believed it. And, and these companies are not doing it for altruistic reasons. They're doing it because by opening up a little bit and letting other people make some profit, they make a lot more profit. So you know is. It's still capitalism. It's just that, the, again, the technology makes it easier for people to cooperate in ways that was difficult, and it makes it inexpensive for people to cooperate in ways that, that were expensive 
before. So suddenly we can we can do things together economically. eBay exists because of that seller information reputation system. Just adds a little bit of trust to the system. So I think we we're seeing lots and lots of of evidence that the I mean doing business the the evolution of capitalism has been about creating mechanisms for extending trust it used to be you had to bite into that gold piece to make sure that that you're getting a gold piece and now someone will give you a piece of paper and you will trust that you'll get your your value out of that you trust people that you weren't able to trust before and i think that that's that is extending yeah, so on think- one hand, we have a massive distrust of certain kinds of institutions and how they're treating us and where information is coming from. On the other hand, we have this kind of increase in people you get to know that, that, that you didn't know so quickly before that you have trust in what they're telling you. It's sort of an interesting paradox. Well, you know, I don't think these are paradoxes. I think they're tensions. I, I don't think we would have evolved to have this conversation if we did not have both co- cooperation and competition. The kind of post-Darwin era emphasized the competition. Actually, Darwin didn't emphasize it that much. He, he had a lot of the cooperative arrangements in it. So I think that with the, the narrative that's changing is about what we know about how, how people and organisms and machines get things done together. There's the trade-off between if we can do things together, we can build common value versus self-interest. I've got to look after myself. No one else is really going to do that for me. That's the social dilemma. And I think that it's in that tension that we come up with all kinds of more and more elaborate workarounds. You know, Robert Wright wrote a very good book about this called Non-Zero about 10 years ago. So I'm out of my time here. Yes, um, we, we're, we, we're out of time too. But um, if you're usually at the show, we have a little after show. And if you don't, it doesn't sound like you have time to stick around today, but maybe you'll come back another time. Just want to let everyone know in the chat room that we will stick around a little bit to chat. Um, there's a short post show tonight. Uh, can you, would you mind leaving us? You've already given us like a lot of good tips. Um, maybe one thing you want people to think about, and I just want to put my two cents in if anyone wants to put it in the chat room or to tweet Howard, um, H Rheingold and Rheingold has an H in it. Um, I vote for crap detection is the name of your book. Crap detection and other skills yeah. you need to live in blah, blah, yeah. world. I think it's a great kind of catchy thing. It's true. Um, people, I think, all inherently think they're good at it, but <laughs> until they're <Yes>. burned. <laughs> and that happens in different ways in life. And uh, so maybe you tell us one thing that you um, that's happened that surprised you that's good, like you know, in the last 30 years of, of the net uh, what what you didn't expect that that's happening, and maybe one one tip about how to how to think better in a networked way, or how to spread that information to somebody who who doesn't have network awareness. Well, you know, we have an opportunity to to learn that I think that um, a dozen times or fifty times a day that that we overlook. Quite often, you use you search because you want an answer. Where's the nearest pizza joint that's open till ten o'clock? Tonight, but so many of the things that we search on, I think if you if you think of it as pursuing a story rather than searching for an answer, trying to find an answer, that the the pursuit. I know there's a lot of criticism that that this is is distracting and shallowing. I think following following where it leads 
is a, a great way to learn learn things. And and don't stop with one search. Pursue pursue what you're 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 learning about. Don't just try to find the answer. Mm. So it's it's all about the process. It's pretty exciting. It's about the process of inquiry. Yeah, yeah. So um, Howard Rheingold, yet another fabulous Jew in the tumbling world. It, we, someday we're gonna have to do a show where we really dig into why there's so many Jews <laughs> that do this. Why it's a, not that we're only. I guess I, I'm gonna put my two cents in for not living anywhere being really handy way to learn. <laughs> if you're new to some place, trying to figure out how you're gonna communicate with someone who's different than you. As yeah. a useful uh, things well, that just, used to be make life more difficult, give you useful skills in a world that's fluid. I think assuming that you fit in does not uh, really push you to having uh, tumbling skills. Um, assuming that you don't fit in and you have to figure out a way to fit in does require you to find out about people and communicate with them. All right. So, um, Howard, let's. Uh, can you spell out for people who are just listening the the main URLs you want people to know about for your book, your university, your your site? Okay. So, if you if you just search on Rheingold space U, the letter U, you'll you'll get to it. But it's uh, Rheingold.com slash university is 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 where you will find the website for Rheingold U. I'm very excited about it. I'm interested in people who find their way there because they are interested in a, a higher level of, uh, of learning. And I know that we need the, the Khan Academy, the, you know, the, the kid who, who doesn't have a, a brick-and-mortar school, but they've got a smartphone and they can learn how to do differential equations. This is something else. This is about learning in a, a, a learning community. Yeah, it doesn't. It's about the way in which people are together, which is kind of everything. I think it's it's great. And when is it launching? It's. Uh, I'm I'm teaching the second cohort of of thirty students now. So it's 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 happening this summer. I'll I'll have more courses. Fantastic! And thanks for being part of uh, you know the tumbling conversation. And and uh, feel free to let us know after the fact if you think it's been a useful word because you've been around this and doing this as long as anybody online. Um, it's our, our little, I don't know if it's a contribution, but we just found it useful. So thanks so much for being here. Howard Rheingold, there's an H in Rheingold, H-R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D. So on Twitter, I'm H Rheingold. Like the opera, yes. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Or, or, or the beer. A resident <laughs> opera expert, Kevin Marks, at Kevin Marks, right? Yes. M-A-R-K-S. And I'm Heather on Twitter, H-E-A-T-H-R, like Flickr. Heather like Flickr. And uh, this is, we're here. We've got a lot of going on at South by Southwest. Kevin's posted all the things we're, we're all speaking on and tumbling here, which are great. Next week, we've got uh, Thomas Nall, who's uh, Zappos' community architect. It's their name. For his, uh, he's a pretty tumultuous guy. And as always, we're looking for more people to come and have that, especially like anybody who's out there who's really following what's going on in Wisconsin or Indiana or Michigan or Egypt or Bahrain, if there are tumblers, people you see who are maybe known or not known who are helping connect people and getting information out there, getting people out to places, or Tea Party, please pass their names along to us. We'd love to have some of those folks in here and like to dig into it more. Howard Rheingold, just um, an absolute pleasure to have you here. 
And uh, if you want to check out more about what I'm doing, you can also check heavengold.com. And Kevin, your what's your blog? It's Epic. Just search for Kevin Marks. That's easy. <laughs> All right. I, I came up All right. Thanks. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for being here. Sure. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thanks to Howard Andrew Hazlitt, yes. producing the show for Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> <laughs>